Hey, I'm Pastor Dave Ferguson. Welcome to Crosswalk Chattanooga's Weekend Teaching Podcast. We're glad you're with us. Glad that you're here. <laughs> Somebody back there almost sounded like Trevor. I don't know if that was him for sure, but okay. <laughs> You got to be have you know be careful about having a recognizable voice because I might just call you out. But anyway, welcome. So glad that you are here as we continue. This is our fourth week of the Unbroken series. He is enough. He is enough. He is enough for our good days, but he's enough for our difficult ones and enough for our brokenness to be unbroken. And if you missed it, um, you know I, I apologize to you. One of the best things that happened all day long happened in our first service as we baptized a young lady who has been walking with Jesus and committed her life publicly in baptism, Margot Darmody, and that, yes, she's right there. <laughs> she's right over here. She nearly stood up, and, uh, you know, no, that's, you don't, Margot, that's, that's an issue your dad has. You don't have to stand <laughs> but she was so nervous about it already, and now she's about to be, what? Um, by the way, if you miss that and, and you feel a little bit cheated, you, you should feel that way. But uh, next week, actually, we're having another baptism, another commitment. Kevin Christensen, in the afternoon, we're going to be meeting. You can go on to our website or our, uh, our app, and you can see exactly what the location is and that sort of thing. But we're going to have a fellowship meal out by the river, and he's going to be baptized out there. You should come. You should come. It is one of the best things that happens in life is to watch and participate and be involved when somebody is saying out loud and publicly with us what's been going on in their heart that way. So thank you for letting us be a part of that, Margot. Appreciate it so much. Uh, Today, we continue into our fourth week, Unbroken. And we, we launch into this in 1 Kings chapter 19. It's a little bit of an unusual story from a very famous life. If you were to rank famous individuals of the Old Testament, you would probably have to include Moses right up there at the top, and neck and neck with Moses would be someone named Elijah. Elijah is a pretty prominent figure, especially for a Jew. In fact, if you were to go probably even today to a home that was celebrating Passover in an orthodox way, you might notice that there would be an empty chair in the room, and that empty chair would be because the very last words of the Old Testament are a prophecy about God sending Elijah. So if he would show up, oh, we'd want a chair for him, right? But here we are in this story. So buckle up. Here we go. Now, verse one, now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done. Time out. Ahab, not a good king. Jezebel, wife of Ahab, is probably leading more than she's following in the, in the course of these stories. And in fact, they have led Israel into idolatry and the worship of Baal and Asherah. If you know what those are, those are false gods. And so what is it that Ahab is telling Jezebel about? Because Ahab has gone to Mount Carmel with 450 prophets of Baal, 400 prophets of Asherah up on top of Mount Carmel with a bunch of people waiting and watching because Elijah has thrown down the gauntlet. Elijah has said, all right, all right, so you think you're up to something here? Well, let's do this. Let's have an encounter. I don't know how many of you follow a sports team, but prior to the big game, you start talking trash. Some, uh, uh, my approach is to wait 
until the trash is going to land right. Because uh, it's really awkward when you talk trash and then it goes poorly. But <clears throat> whether he had done too much trash talk beforehand, he had done some for sure. And as the day goes and the prophets of Baal and Asherah are cutting themselves and calling out to their gods and nothing is happening, the trash talk ramps up. By the way, what all has, has, uh, is being shared with Jezebel? I don't know what all, in fact, Ahab knows. Does Ahab know that Elijah had participated in raising someone from the dead? I don't know if that's a part of the discussion. Or had done various miracles. What for sure she already knows is that Elijah is the one who said, hey, look, because of the idolatry and the direction that we're all going here in Israel, look, I'm going to pray to God that the rain stop. That he announced three and a half years ago, and it's been those three and a half years since it rained. And so people are starving, and there are crops that are failing, and challenges that are difficult. And I guess some people are going, well, yeah, it could be just chance. But up onto Mount Carmel they go, and by the time it's all over, and the, the, the prophets of Baal and, and Asherah give up, Elijah takes the stage kneels in prayer and asks God to visit that spot. And you, if you've read the storybooks, you've probably seen the drawings like I did as a little guy. Fire comes from heaven. And it's not just a little, like, little tiny arc of electricity or something. It's a bolt of fire that consumes this altar that's already been drenched with water. Everything is God arrives. And by the time it's all over, what Ahab is telling Jezebel is, and then, uh, then 850 prophets, you would have thought they had decent odds against the one dude, but no, they're all gone. Dead. It's over. And in fact, maybe he goes on to tell Jezebel the piece that is the very last part of the 18th chapter, which is, Coming off of the high of what has happened, Elijah ends up deciding he is going to run back to Jezreel where, where, in fact, Jezebel resides in front of the chariot of Ahab. So he's just running in front of the chariot. And in fact, as the crow flies, it's 25 miles to say nothing of the winds and twists in the road. Yeah. Nuts. I don't know if you've had one of those days where you just crushed it. I mean, and now you're just soaring. Here I am, everyone. I don't know if you just saw what happened, but that was me. But he is gliding across the earth on the way back to Jezreel, where Jezebel is and where Ahab will tell the story. So now Ahab tells Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel, her reaction, and part of you wonders if the reason that, that Elijah runs back to Jezreel, I mean, why would you go there, is because he thinks now I've won the argument, right? I mean, in fact, by the time we get to this point, he's also prayed and the rain has come. And clearly God is on my side. Surely there will be a parade down the street. Clearly, everybody would be ready to go, whoop, whoop, yes, Yahweh, whoop, 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 not Baal, not Asherah, Yahweh. Jezebel will probably be saying, well, okay, I guess. 
No, no, in fact, Jezebel sends a messenger to Elijah to say, hey, look, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. If you are alive this time tomorrow, I hope I'm hit by a bolt of lightning. It's my business, my mission, my thing. Everything about me and everyone in this city is going to be to end you. It doesn't go the way he's expecting. And so, he is now afraid. Elijah runs for his life. Only two verses ago, three verses ago, maybe four, he's running on cloud nine. And now he's running in fear out into the desert. He runs for his life. When he comes to Beersheba in Judah, he leaves his servant there. And while he himself went a day's journey into the desert, he came to a broom tree, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I'm no better than any of my ancestors. Just look, I want to lie down here and die. Does this seem extreme? In fact, scholars, uh, some would say there's something a little bit wrong about this passage because the juxtaposition of this level of desperation after such incredible victories of God does not make sense. We believe possibly somebody edited this to put it in this order because it doesn't make sense. And you might nod, and if you nod, you're a person who's never experienced depression. Because if you've lived much life, you know that sometimes the lowest lows come after the highest highs. And it makes them feel all the worse. By the way, he comes down from Mount Carmel. He thinks victory is happening. And now he's running for his life. If you, you, you might just kind of read that and pass by it too quickly. Understand a couple of things. When, in the passage where it says that he dismisses his servant, he's, he doesn't have a servant because he's wealthy. He has a servant because he's a prophet. So when he tells the prophet to leave him, what he is saying is, I quit. I'm done. I'm no longer, I'm no longer one of your prophets. And he wanders out in the wilderness. And we can read this too casually. When was the last time things were so desperate for you that you decided to just wander off into an unknown woods with nothing, make sure your cell phone was dismissed, and lie down at night in the woods wanting to die? Don't breeze past this. Sometimes we do this with the Bible. But with astonishing regularity, the people of the Bible are real and experience the kinds of things that you and I experience. And Elijah, man, he's, he's despondent. He quit. It's over. He doesn't want this. So he lays down under a tree and he falls asleep. Time out for just a second. One of the things that mental health professionals will express with regularity is when things are going poorly, they almost always go worse with lack of sleep. 
And it's a weird conundrum because when the, the more agitated we become, it feels like the less possible it is to sleep. And yet sleep is the very thing that maybe we need to get to first. And there he is. He goes to sleep. And all at once, an angel touches him and wakes him up and says, get up and eat. Get up and eat. And he looked around, and there by his head was a cake of bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and then laid down again. I think it's so Awesome that in this moment, desperate and despondent and exhausted and out in the wilderness and alone, quitting, he wakes up and clearly this angel is not just arriving, the angel has been there. And what the angel says is not, get up, I have some instructions. Get up and brace yourself, quitter, because I've got some fundamental things to share with you. Get up, because you are wrong, and I'm going to expose your error. Get up. I've cooked for you. Ah, little, pretty, pretty big, actually, splash of loving well in the midst of it all. So he ate and he drank and he went back to sleep. (laughs) By the way, church, sometimes what the people who are in such need around us need most is a walk in the fresh air, a good meal, and a soft place to sleep. I wonder how many times that would be the number one thing God would ask us to share. Well, he's now back asleep. The angel of the Lord comes back a second time, touches him again, says again, get up and eat for the journey is too much for you. By the way, one of the conclusions that Elijah had come to and everything that was going on is this journey is too much for me. I don't want it anymore. I'm just going to give up. I'm going to send you away. I'm lying down. I want to be dead. It's too much for me. And the angel goes, yeah, yeah, yep. Is it possible that somebody has entered this room here feeling like, I, I can't go on. I can't, this, hey, this many of us in a room, it's possible Somebody here has already written down how it's going to end. And you're feeling it's, it's, just, it's too much. And in this moment, know this. Jesus does not lean in to mock you. He leans in to say, I know it's too much. This is too much for you. Let me, let me help you sleep. Get some food. Goes on this journey that is too much. He gets up, he eats and he drinks and strengthened by that food. He travels 40 days and 40 nights. So problem solved, right? No, he is still completely despondent. Have you had that where you've got to put on a good face and you've got to go to work and you've got to just play it like it's all just fine now? 
And no, no, my divorce isn't affecting me. No, the fact that all my, my children left, the fact that I lost my baby, it's all fine. But it feels like it's just too much. The burden I'm carrying for my child, for my parent, for my spouse, it's too much. But we get our legs to move and we walk the distance. And you'll notice neither Elijah nor God think this situation is resolved. There's more to the story. Travels 40 days, 40 nights till he reaches Horeb, the mountain of God. If you, maybe some of you know, but you might be able to read this and miss out on the fact that Horeb is a name that we don't usually use for this mountain. Often we'll use the name Sinai. This is Mount Sinai, this mountain of God. And he arrives at the mountain of God. He has made this trek 40 days, 40 nights, and there he went into a cave and spent the night. Interesting, as you, if you do a little work in the original language, the Hebrew, well, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what, I'll shortcut that for you. This word, translated cave, can also be translated hollow, like a depression, or cleft, like between a couple of rocks. About this time, you, if you've read scripture much, you're kind of, wait a minute, seems like there's a story of somebody else who was on Mount Sinai between a cleft of two rocks. As Moses goes to seek God, please just show me your glory. God says, my glory is gonna knock you out, dude. You can't handle my glory. I've tried to turn it down a little bit, but the, the knob doesn't go down very low. Tell you what, go get between those rocks. And maybe you can see a little of my glory cascade back and forth between those rocks. Just don't look directly. I'm just, I don't we'll raise you up later. Don't, let's not have that be now, now. So here's Elijah. He's gone to the place he knows that one of his own heroes got to see God. I, I, I think it's hopeful If you are struggling, but somewhere down deep underneath it all, there is this impulse, this wish. I wish I could know that God loves me. I wish I could know that he is real. I'm struggling to believe any of it. For you, maybe that is your trek between the rocks to ask for God to show up. So, there he is, and the word of the Lord comes to him and asks, what are you doing here, Elijah? By the way, in Scripture, Jesus, God of the Old Testament, angels, when they ask questions, it's not so that they learn something, is it? It's not like God is showing up in this moment and saying, oh, Elijah, huh, what are you doing here? No. There's a question that God has that Elijah needs to process. He'll ask it more than once as we go along, but the reply comes back, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, and your prophets have been killed by the sword. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me? It's 
ridiculous. If you can't hear a little complaint in there, probably I'm not reading it correctly. I've done everything. I crushed it. Gone are the prophets of Baal and Asherah, but that doesn't seem to make any difference. The people all keep wandering that other direction. I showed up. Where were you? I quit. The Lord said, go out. Stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Interesting that God doesn't go straight to justifying himself or explaining the situation or arguing with Moses. He just says, come, come out here. And let, let God be revealed. Then a great and powerful wind tore through the mountains and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood the mouth of the hollow to listen for God. And a voice said to him again, what are you doing here, Elijah? How did, how did you get to this point? Let's talk about what's happening. I think it is interesting to process that for this extraordinarily depressed, likely suicidal individual, as God shows up, he treats Elijah's situation with a multidisciplinary approach. He doesn't say, just pray and maybe journal a little in scripture. In fact, his idea of encountering God is the fourth discipline that he approaches. The first, as he treats what's going on in Elijah, he shows up and what happens? The angel touches Elijah. There's another being that is there, one of the tools that is used against your life is to figure out how can we isolate you? How can we make you all alone? This is what is happening for Elijah is he feels all alone and he's not only feeling that way, he's gone and done it to himself. He's gone out into the middle of nowhere. There is no one, right? There is no one. Could it be that one of the most powerful things we can do in the name of Jesus Christ is be together? Where somebody can slap you on the back and say, I'm so glad that you're here today. Did you want a coffee? It's fresh for you. How about a donut? A slap on the back, a perfectly appropriate side hug. We don't do well without human touch. 
we don't do well watching from a distance. We are so much healthier when we're in the room together. First thing is touch. And very quickly along with that, what? The physical. Let me, let me help you sleep. Let me give you something to eat. Here's some water to drink to help you take care of yourself. Uh, God himself, the angel, they don't just leap straight to the spiritual. They deal with relational. They deal with physical. By the way, though, any one of these things that is impactful and important, we could get kind of overboard in glamorization of that to the exclusion, a reduction to the exclusion of all other things. And if you decide that it's all about science and chemical imbalance and everything's just a, just take a pill and that's all you need, you very well may be missing out on some incredible gift for your health and well-being. It's interesting though. Many, many, many human beings tend to reduce everything to one thing so that the person of faith may not be willing to take advantage of the science. It's not just that, right? Which, by the way, uh, a, a great health approach that we sometimes do is we, no, 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 you don't, not big pharma, not, not, not doctors, and not, not pills and medications, but I do have this vitamin that and, and and by the way, are it sounds like sounds like gluten to me. Right? Or whatever. This is not to say that all that stuff is just nonsense. It's to say when we reduce down, we kind of veer off the path that we see God take. Every good gift comes from the Father above. Every good bit of thought and thinking and approach is important to consider. But you know, the other thing that you'll notice in this story is that for the vast majority of these first 19 verses of 1 Samuel chapter 19, the person who's doing the talking is Elijah. Only rarely is it God or the angel saying much of anything. And when God speaks up, what does he do? He asks questions. And then he listens. And he listens some more. And again, every good gift we should take advantage. Look, life is hard just in general. And when you're going through despondency, depression, oh my goodness, struggling with whether you should stay on this planet, we should leave nothing just off to the side that is a good gift. So he asks, what are you doing here? How did you get here? He'll also include the spiritual. Go stand, go stand in the presence of the Lord. God, God, treats, God treats this issue with everything he can find. And I think so should we. <clears throat> I'll also say this. We often think God should show up for me like I heard he showed up for you. And if he doesn't show up for me, like I heard he showed up for you, I don't think he showed up at all. 
it's interesting, fascinating in this story because what happens, God, it's, it's, there's fire and there's earthquake, like what happened with Moses. And by the way, that's who I was trying to mirror in coming here between the cleft of the rock and you don't show up in the fire and the earthquake? God, everybody knows that's how God shows up. You don't show up in the wind like at Pentecost? It's fascinating too. It seems God's trying to make a pretty particular point here because I don't think it's just like accidental that there is fire and there is earthquake and there is wind. So it's kind of like God made these things happen to point out that for you, I'm showing up in a whisper. I will show up for you uniquely. Not in just exactly the way you expect seems like the times we expect God to show up as a, as a fire, he shows up as a whisper, and the times we think he'll show up as a whisper, he shows up as a fire. Maybe it's because he doesn't want us to get to a place where we can simply ignore him. A voice says, where are you? What are you doing? Why are you here? How did you get to this place? How did you get here? And he replies again, the second time around. He replies again, I have been very zealous. Maybe you didn't hear me before. <clears throat> I'll say it again. I have been very zealous. I have done everything I was supposed to do. Frankly, I crushed it. I wasn't so sure. 850, that was a lot. I mean, that was a lot. Fire from heaven, three and a half years without rain, raising people from the dead, stretching out resources in, in daily miraculous happenings. I, I crushed it, God. And what's going on? What's going on is no one seems to care. And I'm not so sure you showed up the way you should have for me. Because I'm the only one left. And they're trying to kill me. And I don't care anymore. I think this could just be over and it would be a blessing. And I want to suggest to you that in the midst of this, we, are, we have revealed a couple of tendencies, a couple of things that happen to us if we're not careful. And I would put it all in this category, missed expectations, things that we expect might happen. And so often when we expect certain things, they don't happen that way. It can be, I mean, it can be crushing. It can be soul crushing. And one of the ways that this happens is our tendency to a certain form of over-optimism. And this may not be something you experience, but many of us do. An over-optimism in our own, a, a kind of a hyped up view of our role in the world. So I, I did everything you wanted. I earned this thing that I feel like I need. I, I, I pretty soon it's I, I, right? And it's, it's a tragic truth in scripture that repeatedly God blesses the meager efforts of someone and then they start to get confused that they were the one that did it. And here's Elijah. Look, I zealously, I mean, I did this thing. And frankly, I expected, see, he is frustrated with God because he thinks God didn't come through, but the problem is he thought his plan was going to be the thing that happened. God's been up to something and God is using him, but God hasn't disappointed Elijah. Elijah's plan has disappointed Elijah. 
and he's over-optimistic that he can actually earn this thing that is supposed to happen in his mind. And sooner or later, we meet with unmet expectations. But it's not the only way we do this. We will also, at the exact same time, be over-pessimistic. Not just over-optimistic, over-pessimistic, because he has locked in, and one of the messages that happens in our depression and despondency with routine, we will hear this from one another. Is it true? I'm the only one. I'm the only one. There's no one for me. This isn't going to work. I'm the only one left, he says. God will reveal to him, you, what are you talking about? You're not the only one left. First of all, I've got these 7,000 over here that you don't seem to count. When we're done in this conversation, actually, Elijah, I would like for you to go and anoint these three individuals who I have these big plans. Oh, we're just at the precipice of the thing I was trying to do, and you thought that we were done. No, 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 no. Hang on. Hang on. There is more that is coming. And in fact, one of the people that he is sent to, um, I've suddenly lost the word, oil on the head. Anoint, thank you. One of the people. Okay, we're going to do the rest of this in charades. One of the people he sent to anoint is a pagan king. Nowhere in scripture do we read at any point he is anything other than pagan. And God is saying, see, you have this lofty view of yourself and a diminished view of everybody else. And I am up to stuff. I will use people you cannot imagine. By the way, church, we do this, not just in our own depression and despondency, but as a matter of fact, right? I mean, thank goodness there's crosswalk to love well, because I mean, no one, no one, no one. Oh, Dave, be careful. God uses all sorts of people that I would claim are pagan kings. Turns out he can use not only a praise band, but an orchestra or the silent moving lips of individuals underground in China. And you think you're all alone. God says, no, you're not. And this is one of the tools of the devil, actually, in entrapping us in our depression and despondency is to convince us we are all alone. We ought not be all alone. We're not intended to be all alone. And there are options for us to not be all alone. If you feel that today, somewhere in this room, I hope, first of all, that you have trouble getting out of this place feeling all alone. I hope you are loved on, on purpose and by accident. I hope something happens that causes you to think, maybe I could reach out because I need some help. There could be resources for me. Maybe I'll just grab Pastor Dave's card at the Next Steps booth and just text him. Or maybe there's somebody in a come early, stay late, stay late, stay wait, stay late, love well t-shirt that I'm just going to say something to and they're going to... They're going to at least show kindness and love toward me and maybe connect me up with something, maybe a piece of bread or a place to sleep. I hope 
we can overcome some of our stuff. Elijah sits down and prays that he might die. I don't know how you read this. You might read scripture very often feeling like everybody's got it all together, but read again. This is somebody who's actually praying for the end of his life. He has suicidal thoughts that are going on in his broken down system. And he's not the only one who will experience this. There are incredible, incredible individuals in scripture, not the least of which is Jesus himself who says, I am acquainted with every one of your griefs. I just want to highlight a couple things here. This is such a challenging series. The church has often acted like suicide is not a thing that that is relevant to us. But we know better. Suicide is the fastest growing killer of people under 20 and 20-year-olds. It's the second leading cause of death in that age group. Interestingly, though, the largest group, the largest number of suicides this year will be among individuals 70 and older. Turns out it's a pretty universal issue that we have. And if you think you can just bulk up, hump up, be strong, and overcome, seven out of 10 suicides this year will be fully grown white men who've had expectations unmet and difficulties that occur. And sociologists tell us that more suicides occur during what they call the midnight hour than any other time of day. It's this period of time, the friends are gone, the event is over, everything starts to quiet down, and I'm left alone by a bush in the desert, and I'm struggling to make it. And it just feels isolated and dark. And you need to know that you're not alone. You need to know that this is important. Someone here may well be wondering if I can stay till tomorrow. And I just plead with you to hear the voice of Jesus, to feel the angel touch, and ask you to stay. Psalm 88. It's a guy, he's a director of the choir. He's, his name is Heman. One of two psalms that doesn't have a single positive notion in it. And this guy will write an awful lot of the music and poetry of the psalms. He says stuff in, in this psalm like, I cry continually day and night and day and night and you reject me. In fact, the last verse, the closing line is, my closest friend is darkness. And God decided it was important for you to be able to read that in his book. To know if you are struggling, you are not alone, and you're not rejected, and God is not repulsed by the struggle. Job, 
will say, my mind is tormented so that I would prefer strangling and death rather than this body of mine. I wish I was never born. So you should know, look, there is a war going on, a battle for our mind, and we do have an enemy that would be happy to help us live into lies. And there are some specific lies that may cross your mind that I would like to just say for a second. I'd like to confront them, and I'd like to tell you that they're lies. These lies of suicidal thinking, they include, first of all, that the world would be better off if I was gone. That is not what Jesus has said about you. It's not what we say about you either. This world is better if you are here. Stay. If it's difficult, if it's a struggle, if you need sleep, if you need food, if you need someone to listen to you, to ask what is going on here, if you need somebody to say, if you come between these two rocks, I think God can show himself to you. Be here, please. Don't go. Don't yield. Don't, don't, don't give in to the darkness. We are better off with you here, no matter how difficult that looks to you. Another lie is that This would end the pain. Oh, that's one of the biggest of lies. Anybody here who has gone through the difficulty and the tragedy anywhere in your family of someone who has committed suicide, you know it does not end the pain. It multiplies the pain and cements it as something you will have to carry. It ends up splashing over communities and grade schools It is a massive lie that this is the way to end the pain. Oh, please don't hear me say that your pain is trivial or small. Finally, I'll just say this lie comes over and over. This pain will never end. This pain will never go away. And I just want to say by faith that yours is a resurrection story. And I don't know the fullness of what that resurrection is going to look like. Could there be a miraculous change? Sure. But it might be a daily grind of us kind of walking together, you living through the pain as Jesus helps your story be a resurrection story. For somebody here, the resurrection will be that you get up again tomorrow morning. God has resurrection in mind for you. And so, if you're tempted to go, you need to hear it said clearly. Please, please, stay. We will not be a community that pretends you're not going through something. We will walk with you. We will be confused with you. We will put our shoulder up under your pain any way that we can. Oh, let it be that we will not judge you, condemn you, or make you feel like the outcast. We want so desperately for you to feel that this is the place, the, maybe the only place that I am at home. And one last, I, I, 
One last thing that I don't want to leave without talking about. Every once in a while, this happens, and somebody brings up the unpardonable sin, and some family, some teenager whose friend has gone. It is suggested they are just lost. I mean, how could they be saved? They've done this as their last act, and there's no more, right? And I just want... I want to encourage you to think about something for a second. The strongest element in the universe is the grace of Jesus Christ. I'm sorry, I just don't believe you if you say to me, suicide is stronger. Oh, I think you can be, I think you can be lost through suicide, but that would be because you were lost before suicide. That's because you chose something else. You see, the Bible makes some things clear. The first is we get this idea from verses like this or in Matthew or in Mark, but here in Luke, Jesus says it this way, everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. So there's something for which you would not be forgiven. And let's just be honest, the Holy Spirit's pretty fragile. No, no, no. You see, it's the same God who will say that I will forgive you of anything, anything, anything you confess. Anything you confess. I am about saving you. My grace is sufficient for you. It's about your choice for me. And so now let's do a little bit of math. If instead of suicide, I die in a car accident and I have not asked for forgiveness in an up-to-date way before that accident, I guess I'm done. Turns out salvation is not by the grace of Jesus Christ. It's the grace of Jesus Christ plus a lot of timing issues. (laughs) Frankly, you're saved by luck. I'm sorry. I believe in a bigger Jesus than that. A bigger God than that. I believe that there is such a thing as the unpardonable sin. I believe if we practice the rejection of the Holy Spirit, we can break off our receptors so that he could be screaming in our ear and we've so practiced not listening that we cannot even hear. I don't think that has to do, though, specifically with mental health issues. I don't believe that has to do with your brain chemistry specifically or whether you were abused and can't take it anymore or... I don't think it is salvation by luck. I think Jesus is stronger than any other force. And he wants you to know it. And for that family member who wonders, it is true. Your son, your daughter may have chosen. They no longer want Jesus at all, and Jesus will honor that choice. But I do not believe it is true. You can equate suicide with a certainty that that choice was made. I'll say it this way. I believe the unpardonable sin is repeatedly, continually, and ultimately refusing the Holy Spirit's wooing to Jesus by solidifying that we are not interested. It's why there's a difference that Jesus is making between whatever you do to me and whatever you do to the Holy Spirit because you're not coming to me except by the Holy Spirit. If you, if you just burn down, torch, blah, 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 for, refuse that, that wooing, I cannot, I cannot help I will forgive every sin. All I want to know is, do you want my grace? 
And in a world in which we live and the mental challenges we go through, I do not believe the math checks out that if a person has just given in to that problem, that they are by default more lost than if I am struggling through a prideful moment in traffic before I get hit. Oh, Jesus is way bigger than that. Jesus, Jesus is trying to find any, every reason to save you and me and your loved one. This Jesus is telling a resurrection story and he's got you in it. Oh, I hope you wanna be in it. And if you're right now, if you are struggling with this in a small way or the worst way, I hope you hear him say, come, come over here between these rocks. I'd just like to show you a little bit of my love for you. I'd like to, I'd like to convince you to wake up again tomorrow morning. I'd like to tuck into your heart Psalm 118, which says, I will not die, but live. Oh, the Savior here, his body here, we call out that you could live, live in spite of the challenge, the difficulty, the struggle, the pain, live. So Jesus, we come to you. We don't know each other's story terribly well, each other's struggle from the inside out, but it ministers to a heart to hear that people who have served your, you best have had some of the darkest nights so that what we go through, you are no stranger to this. You understand it. In fact, you have been through it. Lord, come in power. Come to us with human touch. With the food that we need, the physical healing, the emotional and psychological healing somebody to listen that understands how to help and show yourself to us in a way that will help us make it through another night. And for those of us who don't struggle with this, help us to find compassion in our hearts to love each other deeply Thank you for joining us for this teaching. Consider hitting the subscribe button to stay tuned for next week. If you'd like to support Crosswalk Chattanooga, go to crosswalkvillage.com Chattanooga and click the Give button at the far right of the ribbon at the top. Notice the campus drop-down menu and select Chattanooga. And if you'd like to come and worship with us on a Saturday morning, we would love that. When you do, please say hi to me. I'd love to learn your name.